You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. Clearly, Homer just made the mistake of not being a trans woman. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McManamy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. We are so, so, so thrilled to welcome debut novelist Maya Dean to the podcast. Maya's new book, Wrath Goddess Sing, is a retelling of the legend of Achilles, featuring a transgender Achilles based in history and mythology. Wrath Goddess Sing is a stunning look at Achilles' life as you've never seen it before. We are so happy to have Maya here to discuss her new book, Transgender Achilles, the research she did for this book, and so, so, so much more. Welcome, Maya. Welcome! (laughs) Thank you. So good to be on. It's so great that you came on the show with us. We're so excited to talk about this. We're so excited. This will drop after our four-part series on gender queer Achilles. I knew all about this book, and I was like, I can't wait to have Maya Dean on and talk to her about it, because as soon as you start digging into Achilles, you're like, oh, there's so much more here than people usually talk about. Right? It's so much stranger than the sort of received Victorian-tinted version of the story, which has been all cleaned up and stuff. (laughs) It's been heavily sanitized and straight-washed. And cis-washed and all of that. My gosh. So... We were just so intrigued by your take. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your debut novel, Wrath Goddess Sing, and what drew you to tell this story? So I've been fascinated by the Iliad since I was about six years old. I asked my father to read me a book that wasn't, you know, by Dr. Seuss, and he started with the Iliad, which is an interesting choice. That's a big leap. (laughs) I think he wanted to start at what he considered the beginning. I mean, the Iliad's not the beginning. Gilgamesh is not the beginning. Uh, you could make the case that Enheduanna's writings are the beginning, but probably not. But I was fascinated. I loved it. Um, I was fascinated by Achilles. I was super fascinated by Athena and by the relationship between them, which is strange. Like the first scene of the Iliad features Ache- uh, Athena just basically grabbing Achilles by the hair and being like, no, don't kill the king. 
I mean, the part where she's like, bros before hoes, like, you're just like, what am I, what, why, Athena, why, again? Oh, there's a ton of, there's a ton of things that have, will always give me culture shock about the Iliad. And that's one of the things I love about it. Um, Because they're not the same culture shock that you'd get from like, the received image of the Iliad that I think a lot of people mistake for the Iliad. It's a much weirder story. It's kind of like how Tennyson, although the Victorian poet laureate par excellence, is a much weirder poet if you actually look at Tennyson's writings. Um, The Iliad is super strange. So I've always been fascinated by this story. And when I was a child, uh, I ran into the supposed riddle of what was Achilles' name among the maidens. And I was like, wait, what? And that opened, like, for a young trans girl, that opened the strangest uh, set of questions for me. Just like, hold on. I'm not the only one and something weird is happening here. So I wanted to know more. And I kept running into dead ends, into people with great answers, like Statius, that didn't really hold up on closer analysis. So essentially, Wrath Goddess Sing is a, is a frontal attack on Statius as Achilleid. In a lot of ways, it's a loving tribute to the Iliad, but it's also trying to... I mean, the Trojan War cycle is a fandom that grew up over the course of nearly a thousand years and spanned multiple languages and vastly different societies which used the myths in such different ways. And so I'm trying to respond to large parts of that. As you said, the Iliad is really weird. The Achilleid is also weird and it gives you some depth, but also it's it's a wildly problematic source. We used it earlier in the season because it's what we had. But one of the things that I loved about your Mediterranean in this book is that we've been covering different areas. We've been covering little bits of Egypt, Scythians who may or may not have been the real Amazons and stuff. So as soon as we picked up Wrath Goddess, we were both like, we know this research. We know what she's doing here. And it's so great because a lot of times the Iliad is a weird story that generally focuses on the two brothers and Achilles as like an epic warrior. It doesn't really get into the people and the cultures involved in the conflict, but your book really brings them to life. Honestly, I love how, um, I don't know, what is the word for this? Like how deeply textured your work is in terms of the history and the cultures that you bring in. It's very diverse in terms of the ancient world and and the groups of people who would have been involved in this conflict. So I think that's one of the interesting things. Homer, to the extent that we can talk about uh, Homer, uh, we'll just just use Homer as the convention for, yeah. Um, So Homer very much is doing like late Iron Age fan fiction about about the late Bronze Age right on the verge of the Bronze Age collapse. And so you would expect that the audience had familiarity with at least legendarized forms of Bronze Age Egypt, which was still the cultural hegemon in the Homeric period. I mean, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates supposedly cribbed a bunch of their ideas from Egyptian sources, like the Platonic forms are actually kind of if you if you sort of look at them they're kind of adaptations of new kingdom and later ideas about how time works because there's this like concept of cyclical time and then eternity and objects in eternity have a different kind of existence that's much closer to the platonic forms so like a lot of the purpose of ancient egyptian afterlife technologies was to transition to eternity I love the terminology of that, ancient Egyptian afterlife technologies, because I think that's what, how they would have seen it, right? Oh, 100%. Like so many of the, so many of these 
tombs are literally state research. (laughs) It's almost like I remember getting into this like ages ago before I even got into the podcast where I was reading, I have this copy of the Book of the Dead, you know, in in, like book form and I'm like reading it and I'm like, they're talking about space travel. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. There's, there's one version of, I'm probably actually thinking of the wrong thing. It's probably not Thutmose III's uh, litany to Rob, but there is one text which essentially features the entire underworld journey of the soul is to get to the point where you can be reborn through this serpent of light, at which point you live your life backwards and then leave time. And it describes, I was thinking when I was reading it, oh, the, the perspective on eternity here is how the universe would look if you turned into a photon. Because <laughs> photons don't experience subjective time. They're in all the, pl- they're in their entire light cone at once forever. Okay, my brain is a little bit broken. I'm, I'm like, I'm Benjamin buttoning at the moment and then also in a light cone and I'm... What's a light cone? Um, it's like everywhere, a, it's like everywhere a piece of light will ever go. It's like all the places that you could, oh my gosh. Um, I'm not poet or a physicist enough to explain it well in audio. No, see, that's okay because I frequently go on drunken rants about what I think physics is. So I really, really like... <laughs> I, ha- I have this whole rant about the loaf of time. I, it's a whole thing, um, kind of an in joke with my friends at this point. Oh, if you've if you've if you've read the scene with the uh, the meteoric uh, dagger, then she has like this vision. She has this vision of like uh, supernova creating iron. I love that part. I remember reading that and going like, "Oh wow, we're we're working in space travel the way that the angel world would have seen it." But yeah, the co- so let me just. With the cone of time. Is that like experiencing all of your life all at once at the same time? Essentially. Um, yeah, it's like you're you're not in time sense any like you're in eternity time instead of subjective moving time. Right. So it's not like you're hitting play and something is playing back. It's like you have this is the recording, it is one unit. Mm-hmm. It's like if you're zoomed out and you're seeing all the sound waves as sound waves instead of listening to them segment by segment. I'm totally understanding this now. <laughs> Or like kind of seeing yourself like every follicle of hair sort of like on that macro level. Oh my god. What a terrifying thought. I know, right? <laughs> all the pores. All the all the fine lines that I definitely don't have. Every single keratin noodle. Let's bring it back to Achilles a little bit. Um, so again, we have discussed uh, Achilles as a genderqueer or genderfluid character on the podcast and the history for that. And we were both so intrigued by your depiction of Achilles as a transgender woman. And... What evidence did you uncover in the Iliad, in other ancient texts and sources, in archaeology, anywhere else, for a transgender Achilles? And is there a case that this character was always intended to be interpreted this way? I think that that may not be the angle I want to think about it from, because this has always been a complicated, messy fandom, which has had to serve the interests of huge, huge numbers of people with very different political interests. So I doubt that there were many post-Bronze Age warriors who wanted Achilles to be a transgender woman. At the same time, there's a tradition of portraying Achilles as a woman that goes back to at least to the Roman era and possibly substantially further back. Obviously, we have uh, visible artwork of Achilles as possibly a man wearing women's clothing, but we also have artwork where Achilles is clearly identified as distinctly a woman from a very early stage. And this tradition continues through the Renaissance um, to basically the 19th century where it kind of dries up because the Victorians needed their their clarity. But like in... Ver- 
<laughs> in the gardens at Versailles, Louis XIV's uh, trans sister commissioned this statue of Achilles as a woman called Achilles on Skiros. And she's, I think, in the process of drawing a sword. And yeah, the evidence suggests pretty strongly she vibed to that. So I think that this secondary reading has always been just a really obvious way to read the Achilles on Skiros myths if you're not deeply committed to Achilles as an emblem of hegemonic masculinity. Exactly. I mean, obviously, different people will have Achilles in their own image. Uh, You could even easily present Achilles as a trans man. The biography would fit. Uh, I'm not. So that's not where my imagination went. But you could make it work. Yeah. We've done research on other characters in very, very ancient mythology. Uh, I'm thinking about somebody from the Mahabharata specifically who can be interpreted in the mythology as either a trans woman or a trans man from different angles, which is really interesting. Yeah, or take Tiresias. Like, the character makes just as much sense from either direction. And I'm tangentially aware that there are some really interesting work being done with transmasculine Tiresias right now. Mm, Yeah. I think that's so important about Achilles, too, because I think that the fandom and the way in which people see the stories over time, there has been a lot that's been grafted onto who they see the character as. And a lot of times, you know, the Iliad is weird. And (laughs) descriptions of of Achilles are not exactly what you think they are. Like, because in popular media, in popular portrayals, he's definitely portrayed one way. But I do think that when you actually dig into the sources, that's not necessarily how Homer chooses to portray Achilles. And a lot of times, like, what people forget is that Homer is the person who wrote, or the entity called Homer, put this story down in some form. But it was always changing. And it still changed all through um, all through time. It was always a very fluid thing. That's why it's structured the way it is. So you can remember it and sing it and things like that. And Achilles, as a character, was being debated. We can see it in Plato's Symposium. People were like... Was he in a relationship with with Patroclus? What was that relationship like? It was more like, what binary was it? There's that one guy who popped up who was like, clearly they're just good friends, but... That's Xenophon. Xenophon couldn't handle it. And it's interesting (laughs) because, like, the cousin relationship between them is very clearly established, but also, like, I've, I've written about this a bit on Twitter. Like, there was not a strong cousin taboo, especially not for non-reproductive relationships uh, in the classical period. And I've got no evidence that that was any different in the Mycenaean period. But it shows up as a plot point. I think in the symposium, the question is like, okay, technically, who's the nymph? Agena. So Agena is Patroclus's father's mother and Achilles' grandfather's mother. So that's one of the things used in the symposium as an argument that Patroclus was older and was the uh, Erastes, right? And that Achilles was younger and was the Arumanos, which is uh, definitely them projecting backwards uh, these uh, sexual roles from the classical period a thousand years before into the Mycenaean period. I mean, very specific cultural roles. Yes, we've walked those roads a lot, you know, like the <laughs> different types of masculinity as a construct in, in classical Greece and what masculinity as a construct looked like in the archaic Greek of the Iliad and how it was different. And then the Mycenaean period, which is way weirder, because like one of the things that completely blew my mind doing research for this book was I happened across an archaeologist's blog. And one of the points that she made was exhaustively with a great deal of sources from the Mycenaean archives, various palace state archives, um, equal pay for women artisans was a thing. 
Mycenaean priestesses owned property. Equal pay was a thing. There was some evidence that like there was matrilocal uh, transmission of land in particular, which is why you have so many Iliad heroes basically not growing up to inherit their father's kingdom, but instead finding some other kingdom to marry the daughter of and then becoming king of that. Well, that makes total sense with Menelaus and, and Helen, right? He becomes king of Sparta. I'm like, and obviously knowing that her brothers eventually will die. Like, that makes sense. But at that point in time, like, that that should not have passed the way it did. But now that you've mentioned that, it's like, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense now. Yeah, exactly. It's weird how that works. You've got this sort of, like, war leader versus the person with the land title, gender roles. It's kind of interesting. I didn't really dig too much into that in Wrath Got a Sing, although I think Diomedes, uh, Diomedes, uh, has a line at some point where he's talking about Aegilia, and that's another example of that. But at the same time, it's not universal. Like, clearly, Odysseus uh, takes over Ithaca, so. I have thoughts about Odysseus. I have thoughts about who really rules in Ithaca, but it's fine. <laughs> oh, yeah, I just mean in terms of who has the, the family ties there. Because uh, Penelope is a Perseid, right? She's from this, uh, one of the royal dynasties of Mykene. So do we want to um, discuss, I'm not sure if we're pronouncing it the way you would, but we've, we've been calling her Didymea. Didymea, yeah. Okay, so let's discuss Didamia. So Didamia and Achilles' relationship really shapes who Achilles becomes over the course of the novel, and obviously we're not going to give away any spoilers. But in your novel, Didamia is a priestess of Aphrodite, and she's a trans woman who has made Skyros a safe harbor for those who don't conform to the gender binary of the ancient world. What was it like writing her character and inventing this new Skyros? And um, what did you discover about trans women in the ancient world and their role in religious cults? That's an interesting question that I'll have to split into two parts. So I'm probably going to start with the second part. So one of the things that we see from the earliest advent of writing, specifically on Hidawana, who I briefly mentioned earlier, is we see a strong association between trans women and trans feminine people and a chain of ancient Near Eastern sky goddesses that ultimately give rise to Aphrodite. So Enheduanna is basically a giant Inanna stan. Who wants everyone to know that that Inanna can destroy all the other gods. She's got a line talking about how Inanna will hunt the other gods like a falcon hunts game birds. She talks at one point about how when her priestess robes were taken away and they were trying to force her to wear boy clothes or something, suddenly Inanna showed up and beat up all the other gods. So there's, there's this trans thread that shows up really early in Mesopotamian mythology which is associated with Inanna. And as the Bronze Age progresses, and as we see variations of very similar or influenced uh, sky goddesses showing up across the Levant and the Eastern Mediterranean and moving into the islands and in Anatolia, we see a similar association, which persists into the classical era and beyond between those goddesses, so Kibeli, for instance, and trans priestesses. Diana of... Ephesus would be a great example as well. There's a Scythian connection too, actually. There's the line in, in Herodotus where he's talking about how um, the particular form of Aphrodite that was worshipped in, I think, Ashkelon in the Iron Age had uh, sort of a connection to Scythian Inaris who came down to raid and supposedly they existed as trans women because Aphrodite cursed them which seems like a very cisgender explanation. So we've got this really persistent pattern 
throughout the entire Eastern Mediterranean world and ultimately coming from Mesopotamia, coming from ancient Iraq, that exists as far as the Black Sea and all around it, and that we see pretty early. So earliest Aphrodite starts to appear in like Lesbos and other, other of the islands in the Middle Bronze Age. So it's essentially the question is pretty straightforward. If in this society there are trans women, as there are in every society, where would they go? This is fascinating. I mean, as, as old as cisgender gender was, there would have to be transgender gender. Yes, from the days of Enheduanna uh, onward. So 2300 BCE. We have clear evidence actually from the 27th century BCE. There are artistic depictions of ancient Sumerian and Syrian trans women that go back that far. So basically to before there was a consistent use of writing. So with this strong association between trans women and Aphrodite and the, so Aphrodite in the classical period, we see in the Iliad, a strange thing play out where it's uh, what's known as Aphrodite Pandemos, which is a later development in Aphrodite. Aphrodite predates a Zeus being the head of the Greek pantheon. So like in the Mycenaean period, Zeus is a god of light, but very much a secondary god. And actually the pantheon head is generally, at least at Pylos, um, is Poseidon. Interesting. So this is like a, a pre-archaic Greek understanding of the Greek pantheon. Exactly. So you'll notice that in Wrath Goddess Sing, Zeus has strong Hittite associations. Uh, there's a moment where the canonically, uh, the canonically Hittite on their father's side, Menelaus and Agamemnon, just mention that they're relatives of Zeus. <laughs> and that reflects the religious understanding of the time. How would that be like the religious understanding of the time you would believe that you were related to a god? Um, how does that work? Like, as opposed to people using the story as like a way to establish genealogies and like establish a right to rule, like people would really believe it. I don't think there's necessarily a contradiction. Like if you believe that you're descended from a god and you believe that you're that you have the right to rule, it really helps if you sincerely believe you're descended from the god. It also explains, you know, I imagine a lot of children who don't look like their fathers. Uh huh. It's also pretty easy to imagine many gods seem to have included conflations of historical people. So for instance, Kibele, although Kibele basically becomes yet another iteration of ancient Near Eastern sky goddess associated with trans women with huge powers, the earliest textual evidence for Kibele actually is probably in the Sumerian king list as the only woman king, Kubapa of Kish, who was supposedly a brewer who took over the city of Kish and then became the hegemonic leader of the Sumerian world, like a couple of generations after Gilgamesh. And so at some point, this person was such a big influence on her society that a thousand years later, a thousand miles away, she was worshipped as a goddess. You have to imagine a lot of people thought of it like that. Okay, maybe their ancestor didn't originally, wasn't originally thought of as the Zeus, but once they died, everyone was like, oh, wow. Every time I look up at the sky and see that, you know, gleaming light, I just think of, are you up there? You are up there. And the other thing that, you know, I always think about when I think about the ancient world, it's just, it's just how dark everything would be. Like the amount of light and things you could see at night would be so different. Like you say, you know, looking up on like the horizon, it's like, are you out there? Is it out there? Have I said enough? Pra- Will I make it across the sea? Like, I don't know. <laughs> 
but I'm hoping that you are. Yeah. And I think also just the the relationship that we have in the modern West with the idea of spirituality is fundamentally very different. So one of the things that I was trying to do in Wrath Goddess Sing was write a story that was plausible, where you could imagine that this is how someone would actually see the world. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. I have a question about gender transitioning. Let's talk about how that was traditionally seen in the ancient world, because in your book, Achilles' gender transformation is facilitated by Athena, a goddess. And we've come across kind of a lot of stories of magical or holy or religious or god or goddess facilitated gender transitions in the ancient sources as well. What did you discover about stories of gender transitioning in the ancient world, either in mythology or in history, and how they're traditionally told? And how much did you draw on that? Fairly heavily, but in general, I mean, so in general, gods are invoked, but also in general, even when there's a clear physiological driver, even when there's a clear social driver, you're still going to invoke the gods. I mean, so for instance, not to return to Enhedawana yet again, but like she has this she has this long boast about the incredible power of Inanna being shown by the fact that she gives people magic sex changes. Yes, <laughs> for the awe and wonder of the people. Yeah, to show off uh, because she's, she's a badass. She also destroys mountains for being disrespectful. And the two are actually linked, apparently. There's a strange passage in Inanna and Debi that uh, I think is interesting there. When we look at, say, Herodotus, we see like a multiplicity of explanations. So for instance, when he's talking about the Scythian Enneries, he gives various physiological explanations and also a divine explanation of this female sickness uh, inflicted by Aphrodite. Is this where they sacked a temple and she was real mad and... Big mad. Yeah, she was real big mad. Yeah, she changed them either into women or intersex. I forget which. So the way it's described, she changed them into trans women. But the category distinction between trans women and intersex people who lived as women was weak. Like a lot of the category distinctions we rely on today for some reason, possibly Victorian and post-Victorian political reasons, don't really exist. In fact, if you look at anthropologists talking about, say, trans communities in South Asia, one of the interesting things is how many anthropologists will accuse South Asian trans women of lying about being intersex. We'll just be like, okay, so the intersex ones who are the real trans women are lying <laughs> to protect the non-intersex ones. And it's like, well, actually, if you just look at how these communities self-describe, they're actually more focused on the soul and identity. And they sort of roll with the intersex reading because it kind of is a way to naturalize the body and prevent a lot of insistent questions. And I have to imagine that in many ways, we see similar things in ancient societies where if there's a licensed way to go about things, you will make yourself fit. And if the gods bless those things under certain circumstances, you'll make yourself fit that too. 
one of my favorite passages from like the first century, there's this line of Philo uh, of Alexandria, where he's just ranting about how much he hates Alexandrian trans women. And he describes their med- he describes their medical practice. He describes like their cosmetics. He's like, they're so hot and I hate it. He's like, their haircuts are amazing, all curled. Their makeup is ridiculous. He's like, they're wearing gold and jewels and purple. It's this, they should die right now. And God. <laughs> yeah, he says a bunch of horrible things, which weirdly echo what St. Augustine says 300 years later about Carthaginian trans women. <laughs> So many thoughts about that fragile masculinity. I mean. Oh, yeah. But also in a lot of ways, they were just strongly tied to specific like goddess related cults usually. And their transition was considered to be like a religious act. And that's one of the reasons why like that was part of the cultural acceptance such as it was. So I really feel like the distinction between what we consider like medical and social transition and what we consider divine sex changes is an artificial distinction. That said, Achilles definitely gets more favors direct from the gods than many of the other trans women in the book. And she understands that to be because she is a demigoddess and she's special. <laughs> but it's a point of tension. Yeah. I mean, it's a point of tension between um, Didamia and Achilles in the beginning. Oh, hugely. I thought that was really interesting because Didamia struck me as a very accurate portrayal of a trans woman who would have existed in the ancient world. She's tied to a cult and her gender and her the way that she experiences is very tied to Aphrodite and like the sort of magical relationship between that religious worship and your gender if you're a trans woman in a cult, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And Achilles is like very not that. Very not that. And she's specifically skeptical about the gods. So I could imagine that would be a huge source of tension. Yeah, definitely. Definitely is. Um, and I found that interesting to explore because so the character of Deodami as she's normally portrayed in Statius and so many other sources is kind of a cipher. She's sort of zeroed out in order to be like in the Statius version, she's literally just a sex object for Achilles to do grossly transmisogynist things to. And I thought it was much more interesting to consider what her actual role would be and to give her something, some actual reason for Achilles to be here on Skyros instead of some other island. You do such a good job of making her an actual character as opposed to kind of this like a set piece. Like, you know, you see her in Statius and again, he's got his own things he's trying to do with that poem. You know, he, he makes choices that I'm like, that's not a great choice. They're very Roman choices. They are very Roman choices. And they're, they're about, and we talked about this too, the Roman coded masculinity. They're about like, what happens when a male is exposed to the rites of Dionysus? He goes all wild because we have to shut down the cult of Dionysus. But at least you kind of get the idea of a little bit of what Achilles' time might have been like there. What's the relationship between Achilles' gender and her power as a demigoddess in your book? And how does it resemble or not resemble that relationship for the original Achilles in the Iliad? That's a really interesting question. Um, So something that I've always been fascinated by is there are so many ways to imagine gender outside of a straightforward sexist hierarchy. And we see them really early in human history. I mean, it's no accident that even as the Sumerians invented, in many ways, patriarchy, I mean, not that they were the only inventors, obviously. At the same time, we have this incredibly forceful set of anonymous that are about the opposite of that, about the destruction of hierarchy, about this uh, terrifying goddess who smashes mountains for disrespecting her and cannot be contained. And 
frequently rejects hierarchies, scrambles them up, gives you magic sex changes, all of that. And when I approached Achilles, I had no interest in sort of rehashing essentially 20th century gender questions. Like I mentioned before, the Mycenaean world's treatment of gender was different, even to begin with. Obviously, their rights their rights smack up against uh, Thracian and Scythian um, territories where we have, from the Middle Bronze Age, very clear evidence that women were warriors and that there weren't strict gender hierarchies of that sort. And even the Hittites, who were relatively patriarchal for the region, you have massive exceptions. For instance, a character that I wasn't able to include in the book very much, but I really wanted to, because historically she was active during this period, was the Hittite queen Pudukhepa, who is fascinating. Historically, she wrote Nefertari, uh, Ramesses II's great royal wife, and Ramesses II, a series of car- of letters and correspondence that are fascinating to read, because one of the letters to Ramesses is essentially... He wrote to criticize her for marrying one of her one of her daughters to the king of Babylon. He's like, don't you know Babylon isn't really a great kingdom anymore? She's like, don't you know you don't get out of Egypt much? If you don't think Babylon isn't a great kingdom, you should reconsider <laughs> and educate yourself. Wow. <laughs> Maybe leave your own house once in a while. <laughs> this is what makes me so furious about history. Like, oh. These women, we just, we don't get their stories as much as we get the stories of other men. And we should. It's just, oh. Oh, yeah. Pudukhepa is fascinating. Like, she was personal friends with, she was personal friends with multiple goddesses. Like, literally, she would just be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to see my friend, this goddess. We know each other. (laughs) Out of my way. Awesome. We're going to blast some mountains. (laughs) Yeah. They back disrespectful mountains. (laughs) Some disrespectful mountains. So I wanted to look at an Achilles who could exist in this Bronze Age world, not an Achilles that would like, and you sort of, you run up against the uh, Tiffany problem pretty, pretty quickly, which is that people kind of project backwards Victorian assumptions about gender roles into ancient societies that sometimes things might rhyme with that. And then sometimes things would not rhyme with that at all. So Achilles, I mean, it's, on the one hand, her demigoddess status is why she has so much social power in the specific Achaean society she's part of. On the other hand, many of the societies in the region, the Amazons, uh, but also Egypt, there was a level of, I don't want to call it gender equality, because it was very different from what we'd consider equality in modern terms, but agency for women that we do not see celebrated to nearly the same extent for like another 2,500 years, with exceptions. That's a very important distinction too, agency versus equality, not the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Like Egyptian women had enormous agency in the Bronze Age and even in the Iron Age, especially by the standards of the region. That's so fascinating. Also doesn't shock me because, you know, you look at some of the stuff that Cleopatra was doing and it's like she came from this place of knowledge and power and that was super important to their people and preserving that and even then like she was the patroness of like a bajillion different things because that's what they valued the calendar like the julian calendar was a present from cleopatra she was just like okay this is this is the fruits of state research we finally figured out a way to make the calendar click yeah julius caesar's like i need i need to do this and put my stamp on it and cleopatra's like already handled babe i mean if he if he'd survived like Rome would have been so so much closer to Egypt I think it would have been so different 
Yeah. So um, relationship between Achilles's gender and her power in your book, it was actually interesting because she's a demigoddess before she she has her Athena facilitated transition. But she doesn't know that. <laughs> she doesn't know it. And, and the way that people receive her is quite different. So I thought that was interesting. Yes. So a lot of it is like, because she has this very obvious miracle, people are like, oh, you're definitely a demigoddess. This is not just a thing we've heard about you. And also, you're definitely not a demigod. Okay, do I really want to upset the gods? No. So she has a lot of leeway. There's actually a point where Meriapi uh, points out, like, she's like, Achilles is like, oh, you know, Achaeans aren't big on etiquette. And Meriapi is like, you mean you aren't big on etiquette? They are. <laughs> you just give zero shits and everyone just takes it because you're a demigoddess. And I thought it was really interesting, too, the way that you deal with privilege in your depiction of Achilles, because she's obviously in, in many ways not privileged in her treatment, especially before her transition. But also there's this character who is an enslaved person who's also a trans girl. And, and her treatment of her prior to and after that, you know, kind of makes her think about that, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, it's something that I, I really don't think you can engage with the ancient world without at least being as honest about privilege as they were. And frequently, ancient texts are extremely blunt about that kind of thing. Like the Iliad spends a huge amount of time talking about how much it sucks to be a captive, how terrible a fate it is to be enslaved. And that does reflect um, archaic era norms, which were probably different in that, well, in that enslaved people probably had fewer legal rights. Did they have legal rights? Well, so in the late in the late Bronze Age, in the late Bronze Age, things were a little different. Like, for instance, if you look at the way that enslaved people were regulated during the late New Kingdom in Egypt, it was terrible. But at the same time, there were strict legal limits, and the legal status that they held was both kind of strange and also very different from what we would think about if we thought about Roman era slavery or if we thought about post-colonial like chattel slavery or anything like that. Like the range of human arrangements that we classify as enslavement is pretty broad. And while it's obviously horrific, examining those relationships closely definitely is something that I think fiction can, especially historical fiction can do. So like Melia, the character in the book that you referenced is very much like the position she's in is obviously diametrically opposed to that of a demigoddess. Like she has very little direct agency over herself and much of it is negative agency in the form of like Achilles is like, oh, well, I could pray to my mom. I could give you a favor to sort of bribe you for the way I treated you years ago. And Melia is like, oh, honestly, Probably not a good idea to get too close to the gods. Thanks, but I'm good where I am. And it's because it's, it's self-preservation. It's the safer thing to do in her pretty challenging situation. Athena, for me, she's one of those goddesses that, like, everyone loves. She's my mom's favorite goddess. But also, like, I've got a super complicated relationship with her because she does things. And you're just like, but why? Um, she's the goddess of war strategies, heroes, and particularly the, hero the heroic endeavor and knowledge. In your novel, she's the mother of Achilles. Why did you choose Athena to be the mother of Achilles over sort of the traditional Thetis and like also like Athena is supposed to be a virgin goddess? So first, 
Athena is supposed to be a virgin goddess in the classical period after she's been daughtered up to Zeus. But the earliest Athenas, like Athanapotnia, uh, that we see in Mycenaean sources, is just there. Like, is it is she in a you know father-daughter relationship with Zeus? Very unlikely, because Zeus is this minor god of light. <laughs> and she's probably in a rivalry relationship with Poseidon that we actually see echoes of in the Athenian founding myth. So she's a very different kind of goddess in a lot of ways. She's much more in charge of her own portfolio. She's much more literally a rival to the Mycenaean chief deity. So one of the things in Wrath Goddess Sing is that Odysseus straightforwardly does consider her his chief deity in a sort of henotheistic way. I would also say she's considered a virgin goddess in quotation marks. Like, as we've looked at with Artemis, like, it's very likely she was not a virgin goddess, but... Based on on the sort of binary of the classical Greeks, which is where I'm pulling that from. That's how they saw her. Yes, definitely not a goddess looking to find a husband. So one of the things that I found interesting about Thetis, her role in the Iliad is shared with Athena, structurally. Like Athena is the one who actually will show up and keep Achilles from dying. And then Thetis will show up and help Achilles get killed, ultimately. So I definitely have my own nod to Thetis in there, but... One of the things I was really interested in exploring was the complex way that trans families work, because it's not rare at all to have like a trans mom in addition to your mom. And your trans mother is in a lot of ways sort of the mother of you as a person existing on your own terms as an adult. And that relationship runs very deep, but it's almost never a biological relationship. So I was really interested in exploring Achilles in sort of that mother of the soul kind of, uh, Achilles and Athena in sort of that mother of the soul kind of relationship, where we have a very clear origin of Achilles' body, which is Thetis, but we also have a spiritual origin for her, which is Athena. And I was really interested in exploring that relationship and holding it up to the light, especially given how weird Athena is if you actually strip away her classical trappings. Like, she's an owl goddess. What does that actually mean? Owls are terrifying, gross creatures. They barf up the bones of their dinners. Yeah, they barf up the bones of their dinners all the time and pile them in a strange alternate realm full of bones. Right. And I think that shows up in your book in weird ways. Like there's a lot of bone piles. There's a lot of bone piles associated with Athena. She's slivering the flesh off the recently deceased who have been killed in battle. As you do. As you do. You're, they're made of meat. There's actually, this is a total different walk we could go down, but there's, there's so much interesting stuff in your descriptions of the terrible secrets of meat. It's also really fascinating because there's a lot of different owl goddesses. And I say goddesses because usually it is women. We just worked on a book of world mythology called Women of Myth, which won't be out for ages. But like, I think two of the goddesses I covered who were owl goddesses were um, Arion Rod and was it? It's the Musica goddess. Is it? Muisca goddess Huitaka. Huitaka, yeah. And they were both, um, they were both very much like owls were one of their forms and they were very much fuck you to the patriarchy. Yeah. So that's actually like one of the... It's a very, um, so my, the approach I take in Wrath Goddess Sing is highly syncretist. Like, for instance, the interpreta, interpretatio greca is followed sort of for most of the gods, with some exceptions that I changed. Like, Athena is not Neith. But one of the approaches that I took was to think about the way that the portfolios of gods would be compatible with gods that literally wander around messing shit up. And you sort of know them by the type of chaos they cause. And you're like, oh, that's owl goddess. <laughs> Oh, that's, that's cow goddess. 
It makes a lot of sense. And when you break down those myths, at least most of the Greek gods do just go around <laughs> fucking shit up, don't they? Like Constantly. And it really, calling them, you know, Al Goddess and Cal Goddess and stuff like that, it really just brings depth to how those stories would have come about and how the, the people would have seen them. Because like for us, we see them as stories, but they're like, oh no, that's just the cow goddess out just fucking shit up again. One way that this shows up is just in terms of, we're talking about meat and eating dead people and how this would have been fuel to the gods. And there's a visceral way that you incorporate that. I mean, when you de-alienate the practice of eating meat and when you also consider like the religious elements brought into meat eating that are so carefully laid out in homer like you have to wrap the bones in fat and cook them for the gods so that they get their aroma or else bad things will happen and then you get to eat the rest this is standard like uh for instance all of that food that was sacrificed at the altars of dead egyptians was then often moved to another tomb to be sacrificed to another dead Egyptian, and then finally ended up being eaten by people who lived in the area. A friend of ours, Liv from Myths Baby, different podcast. I was having this conversation with her about sacrificing animals, and she discussed this with an archaeologist who specializes in this. And he was saying, you know, think of it, all these descriptions in Homer of all these sacrifices of animals, like it's food porn. It's like a big barbecue, but with a religious aspect. Yeah, I think that's very fair. Like, I think that food has always had a strong religious character, and Wrath Gotta Sing is a very hungry book. We've got to talk about Patroclus. I've always been a huge Patroclus fan, particularly since Song of Achilles, and now that we've done lots of work on uh, Achilles in the sources, I love Patroclus even more. But in Wrath Goddess thing, we see Patroclus in a very different way. He's happily married. He's got a badass Egyptian wife. Can you tell us about why you decided to portray Patroclus this way? So a lot of it was Wrath Goddess Sing is not so much a book about romantic love. Like romantic love is a subset of that. But, but really the love of family and found family is the strongest element in Wrath Goddess Sing. So the love between Achilles and Patroclus is a giant part of the story. It is the backbone of the story, but it's not the sexual engine of the story. And honestly, other people have done a wonderful job exploring that fandom and made it really good. But I was interested in exploring what it would be like to be sort of unconditionally, familially loved by someone who is amazing and you sort of feel possessive of them and you have to negotiate the fact that they also have a relationship with someone else and you can't necessarily have them in that way and you don't necessarily want to but you have to navigate those strong emotions in order to see where that love goes and so like um chapter 13 i think is the is the one where achilles wakes up with a burning question what is love and then patroclus gives that answer and that's sort of the core answer for her. We've got hilarious answers from Diomedes and uh, Odysseus. But then we have ultimately Patroclus's answer, and that's the one that really resonates. Remind me what Patroclus's answer is. I think love is a salute between souls, Patroclus had said wistfully. In a sense, we are always alone, ships in the night crossing the wine-dark sea. And yet, every now and then, we uncover our lantern, and an answering lantern flickers across the waters. And we know that we are also never alone. Oh, yeah. I love that line. Yeah. That's pretty true, I think. <laughs> yeah. And I think that there's a lot of that. There's like a lot of that becomes 
complicated and Wrath got to sing in interesting ways because there are moments where Patroclus is like, oh, like, oh, okay. Like there's a scene I will not spoil the where Patroclus realizes that Achilles is handling grief in a way that he wouldn't and that he wouldn't have expected her to because she's not a man. I'm just going to say one of my all-time favorite scenes is when Achilles meets Mariafi, who's Patroclus' wife, and she's just like, okay, now we're just going to drink. And they just have this moment where, like, have we always been best friends or are we just best friends forever now? Yeah, there's this concept of, like, a culturally pure Hellenism that turns into, like, a pocket dimension that this is supposed to happen in. And I obviously really object to that because the late Bronze Age world was super interconnected. It was incredibly cosmopolitan even random people who lived in cities and even random people who lived in villages in the countryside had a level of interconnectedness with other societies that we do not see for thousands. Like we don't see it until late in the, well into the Roman period, that kind of resurgence of internationalism and cosmopolitanism. And so for me, one of the most interesting things about it is, well, yeah, of course there would, there were Egyptians there. And of course there were Achaeans at the battle of Kadesh. They would literally have been Hittite mercenaries, except for the ones who were Egyptian mercenaries. I really loved that you, you know, like I said earlier, a lot of times we we see the depiction of, you know, this particular story. And it is very sort of like, maybe you get a little Hittite when you talk about the Trojans. Sometimes you'll see the Scythians when you talk about the Amazons. But essentially, it's just like all of Greece was one sort of monolith and they all were like this. And they all came over to fight and they had no trade or no interaction with anyone else in the rest of the world. Well, I think that was a lot to do with European and especially Victorian colonialism. Um, so you sort of have to divide the past into these neat little colonies that don't interact with each other so that you can divide the present into these neat little colonies that don't interact with each other. And it was a myth in Victorian times and their production of the path was a, past was a myth, but it was a myth that served the interests of their ruling class. And I'm maybe not a big fan of the Victorian ruling class. I think we should tear that down. And I've definitely come across the connection between the Trojans and the Hittites before. Um, I'm wondering if you could expand on that a little bit, that research and who were the Hittites and how how do we see the Hittites in the Trojans as depicted by Homer? So that's where things get weird. Um, the Trojans were definitely part of the larger Hittite empire. Um, Wilusha was actually a Luwian city-state. The Luyans were essentially a language group that started out as like the Western edge of the Hittite sphere of influence. But by the end of the Hittite empire, all across Anatolia, Luyan was the major language and Hittite wasn't really used anymore. So it's not inaccurate to say that the language group and the civilization were kind of a porous, interchangeable thing. And that in a lot of ways, they would have had weird similarities with the Achaeans, but they diverged. 600 or so years before on the other side of the Black Sea, or 700, 800 years before. So they were very different, but at the same time, weirdly similar in ways that they would probably have constantly noticed. And the Luwians spoke a very closely related language to Hittite. So actually, like the name Sarpedon, who shows up in the Iliad and is the subject of this elaborate sort of retcon in Greek mythology to try to make this name refer to one person who lived for three generations it was probably a Luvian title which means like overstander sarpedon and that was turned into a name by the common process of oh this word keeps showing up <laughs> must have been a guy 
one of those 300-year-old dudes. You run into them all the time, 300-year-old dudes. So Sarpedon, yeah, would be an example of a Luwian title, which shows up as a minor thing later in the book. Um, the Hittites were kind of this strange but very common, like actually not that strange if we think about the way the Achaeans were set up, where you have this like central hegemonic city-state, more or less, um, Hattusha, and then you have a sometimes loose, sometimes strong dynastic confederation of essentially like cadet branches and relatives holding together this large Anatolian empire, which frequently challenged Egypt for control of Syria and Canaan. And 50 years before the events of Rathgat is Singh, famously so at the Battle of Kadesh, which was the then largest recorded battle in history massive numbers of chariots and probably massive numbers of infantry as well like ridiculous as a percentage of the ancient near eastern world the elite fighting forces were mostly present at kadesh to a startling extent so one of the things that i was very interested in exploring with the trojans was just okay like if we're actually looking at the historical people they were they would have been what were the actual geopolitics like well it turns out Wilusha is kind of a, Wilusha is where we get the word Ilios, it's where we get, uh, Tarwisha is where we get the word Troy, Troas, they're Greek versions of Luwian words. And Wilusha was actually kind of a weird, frequent breakaway where it would constantly reject Hittite hegemony, break off on its own, sometimes aligned with the Achaeans, sometimes aligned with the Hittites against them. Long history of kind of playing the field to set up regional hegemony because Volusia was a fairly major city in northwestern Anatolia. And when I looked at the Alexandu letter and other things like that, like there's there's literally a letter from the Hittites. I forget whether it's to or about Alexandu because it's been a while. But there's this figure, Alexandu, who's literally the king of Volusia. And the Hittites are like, okay, but you're out of line and you need to obey us. There's a Piyama who shows up and also shows up in Wrath Goddess Singh. Probably, historically, the events of the Iliad are conflating several generations of on-and-off warfare, and also, historically, the Achaeans definitely lost their war with the Hittites, which actually may have precipitated the Bronze Age collapse because the Achaeans were the international shipping carriers, and the late Bronze Age Eastern Mediterranean was really interconnected, so when you shatter your shipping carriers, you can have some pretty big uh, knock-on economic effects in a really networked society. You're talking to two people who just had our books pushed back six months because of the supply chain. So yes. (laughs) There you go. The Hittites should not have destroyed the Achaeans. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) So that may also be one of the reasons why the Hittites are never mentioned by name as a polity by Homer. Because like, Weirdly enough, the Hittites kind of vanish from the Mycenaean Greeks talk about them a lot until after the Dark Ages when they just don't seem to be aware that they existed, which is weird because they carried cultural memories of the Amazons. There are so many myths of the Amazons and there's so much like there's the Amazon Amazonomachy, the reliefs that were on the Parthenon. Yeah. So these were these were huge stories they carried through. Oh, not just stories like there were all these Greek travelers who were like, oh, yeah, that over there, that's an Amazon grave. That city was founded by Amazons. Like most of the cities in Ionia, they were like, oh, yeah, it's founded by this Amazon, founded by that Amazon, founded by this Amazon. And they clearly locate them to the Middle Bronze Age. Then there are stories about 
like Libyan Amazons. There's a pretty clear like multipolar Amazon thing happening. There are hints that there's that the Amazons are some kind of like international league of like warlike women from multiple parts of the world who join forces and essentially turn into pirates who invent cavalry. Fascinating. Oh yeah, the Wrath Goddess Singh version. I basically just saw the fact that the Amazons were credited with inventing cavalry and was like, well, why not? Like Bronze Age horses were tiny. They were mean little ponies. Mean little ponies. So, you know, if you're going to have like two men riding around in a chariot, you can do it with two horses pulling, but like, or you could have one smaller archer and twice as many of them. The history of chariot warfare versus the rise of cavalry as well, like something I came across when we were looking at the Gauls and the Celts. This is something we covered ages ago, but one theory I encountered was that breeding horses larger meant that men could ride the horses now. But if you have teeny little mean little ponies, women were probably your main cavalry. Exactly. Yeah, that's actually, that was something I very intentionally went with. Like, um, that's why I have the Amazon men be infantry. I was because it makes sense as a combined arms strategy in a society that maybe doesn't have the kind of gender roles that become de rigueur in the classical period. Exactly. Question, did your saddles have stirrups? No. I don't even recall if my Amazons have saddles. I think I described uh, Andromache as riding on a horse and basically having a blanket. But yeah, there's also a point where one of the Amazons uh, boasts of like just incredible thigh strength just like yeah i can i can stay on a horse i can kill you with my thighs yeah and they would have been able to <laughs> oh yeah so helen is your main antagonist or a main antagonist in wrath goddess sing which is a very different and unusual take on the story at least as we read it and we would love to know more about the historical basis for helen as puppet master i think the thing about helen is you always kind of see her as like either she's been She's been seduced and decided to go away or, you know, she's under a love spell or she's just like, I'm out. I'm done with this nonsense with this husband of mine. But you have a very different take on her. Um, First, there are multiple Helen traditions. There's a Helen tradition where Helen is supposed to be this blameless figure. But there's also a Helen tradition where Helen is literally the only person who was never in any danger throughout the entire war. Like in the Iliad, we see her rage at Alexander, Alexander. Um, for coming back instead of fighting boldly because it devalues her. She's like, are you trying to dishonor me? Go back out there and fight. And he's like, but I would he's like, but I would have gotten killed. And she's like, don't care. She's like, step up. Aphrodite will probably help you. It is all about me. <laughs> yeah. Also, you don't see my husband being afraid. Come on. Yeah. She's like, come on. I have standards. You can't expect me to take an insult like this. The first thing we see Helen doing in the Iliad is first she gets upset that like her dead brothers aren't aren't in the fighting. She's like, where are they? Don't they care? And then the narrator's like, dear reader, her brothers had died years before, but she didn't know because she was a bad sister. But then, then she goes to her chambers and she's making this tapestry of Achaeans and Trojans fighting over her. And she's like, yeah, this is good. She's like, whoever wins, this is art. The depiction of her as the heroine in the middle of this fighting is is what is the most artistic to her, possibly. So that's the thing that I was interested in. Just the idea like, okay, what if Helen isn't a victim? What if Helen isn't a victim? And what if Helen isn't some kind of like simplistic temperatress or seductress or anything like that? What if Helen is literally a demigod like she is canonically? Even in the versions where she is Clytemestra's sister, she's the immortal one who's constantly glowing. <laughs> 
I have so much sympathy for Gladmester in so many ways, but like being Helen's sister is one of the big ways in which I'm like, yep, yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then there are all these strange Helen narratives. Like, for instance, supposedly the reason Homer went blind along with several other poets who wrote about Helen was because Helen did not approve, the divine Helen did not approve of her portrayal and blinded them as punishment. Your eyesight's still fine, right? Yeah, but, you know, I have, I have Achilles on my side. Fair, yeah. <laughs> and Athena. Yeah, I'm ready for this one. Clearly, Homer just made the mistake of not being a trans woman. Well, that is a mistake, clearly. <laughs> so basically what happened was uh, I looked at the different Helen myths. Like there's a there's a Helen myth where she's in Egypt the whole time, chilling, drinking drinks on the beach while the fighting happens at Troy. And this is actually supposed to be a sim- sympathetic to Helen's story because like, well, you know, she's perfect and she had better things to do. She was never sillied by being a captive. That happened to a projection Helen. She's a hologram is how you termed it. (laughs) Yeah. Like that just blew my brain. Oh my gosh. So the other thing that I thought about was in a lot of ways, I've conflated Helen with Eris. I was going to say she has a very Eris quality to her. Yeah, exactly. Why shouldn't the golden one be the golden apple? That actually makes her like doubly terrifying now that you think about it, because she's already got these powers that start these wars. So that's very Eris like to begin with. Yeah. And then I looked into it a little deeper. And because I'm doing this syncretist thing where I'm conflating things, um, one of the things that I looked at was the potential for, so like there's some Eye of Ra imagery there. So there were multiple Hittite sun goddesses and the most chaotic of them I kind of drew on for Helen. It's just nice to see Helen have more to do than be just having a good time shagging Paris, I guess, or running away from home. Like being the object, you know, like being the MacGuffin that everybody fights over. Like she's she's like a person in this depiction. And also like I'm a big fan of women who are villains or villainous. I like that anyway, because like the villain in the story always has so much agency and so much personality, you know, like if it's done well. The villain always gets the best lines. They get to do the coolest stuff. (laughs) Like, let's be honest. Oh, Helen has. Yeah, Helen has no shortage of great lines. (laughs) Helen definitely has the most fun of anyone in the story. In fact, canonically, she's still having fun. There is chemistry between Helen and Achilles in this book. There is chemistry between Helen and Achilles. It kind of finds its expression in eroticized combat rather than in sex, but it's definitely there. There's a lot of hatred. I would not necess- I would definitely not describe it as the enemies to lovers trope. It's more like they hate each other, but in kind of a hot way. <laughs> I was really interested in that, too, because um, your Achilles, you preserve her sexuality. Like, she's not a man having sex with Patroclus in a relationship with Patroclus. Like, that queerness is off the table in your book. But she's a woman who has relationships with women and men. So you are preserving the Achilles queerness in a way that feels very true to the original Iliad to me. Yeah, that iconic, that iconic Achilles bisexuality, which as a bisexual myself... (laughs) Um, I generally, I generally feel like bi erasure is the is a constant problem in queer fandoms, and it's a very easy it's very easy to do a bi erasure with Achilles if you foreground any of Achilles's canonical relationships, unless you refuse to. <laughs> so this is a very this is a very bisexual Achilles, and like she's complex and messy. I, I'm not entirely sure that she. I'm not entirely sure that she has romantic love with her sexual partners exactly at all ever. 
not necessarily by design, but just because. Uh, Didamia, possibly? Oh, yeah, definitely. There are a couple of others. But the love, but, but her love with Didamia is complicated. It's always going to be complicated. And in some ways, it doesn't follow a classic romantic narrative either, because not just because they have that colossal fight, but because their destinies are pointed in such separate directions. And it's impossible for either of them to forget that. But at the same time, they keep coming together. Yeah. It's like that person you just can't, you can't not with them, but you know you want very different things and you're headed in very different directions. Exactly. So the the relationship with Zydamia is very complex. And then um, in a lot of ways, her friendships and her familial bonds are so central to her that that's really one of the things that's explored. And I think one of the interesting things is the degree to which there's a queerness to prioritizing friendship in that way too. Yeah, there's a queerness to chosen family. What you were telling me about um, having like a cisgender mom and a trans mom, if you're a trans woman, that was really interesting to me because Achilles' trans mom is the one who facilitates her transformation. Exactly, which is very, very standard. And I can just see this as like a really like a story about family and a story about transgender family in particular in this incredible Bronze Age setting, (laughs) which is so cool. Your depiction of Iphigenia freaks me out. Like, I'm just like, this is a creepy child. So I will I will say, canonically in the Iliad, there is no Iphigenia. Her name is Iphianasa, and she's alive the entire time. There's that line in the Iliad where Achilles is offered by Agamemnon, his daughter, Iphianasa's hand in marriage. Like, please fight for us. I will marry you off to Iphianasa, which is like a really gross joke if she's dead. It is. I mean, we we pulled very heavily from Euripides. Just makes them more interesting. Like, it gives them that beef from the beginning, doesn't it, when you have that reading? Yeah, but that's that. That's like a can. That's like a. a it's like the, the canon is mutually contradictory and messy because technically Iliad canon she's alive i kind of found a way to split the difference you might have started to notice because she's alive but in a complicated way i'm definitely glad that i read the locked tombs books after i wrote wrath goddess sing what are the locked tomb books okay so the amazing Thames and more wrote these the think lesbian necromancers in space essentially you had me at lesbian necromancers in space my gosh <laughs> There are a lot of bones. There's a lot of creepy shit. The aesthetic is very like, you know, carrying a bag of bones around so you can summon them from the dead. Look, this is very practical if you're a necromancer. You need to have an appropriate cask for your bones because you never know. That's a major That's a major plot point in locked tomb books. So yeah, uh, <laughs> my Iphianasa is definitely not directly influenced by that. But I did, I did like, I found it interesting to draw on some combination of uh, Lamia mythology and kind of slight hints of vampirism. Yes, <laughs> you do that very well. Was there any of the like Greek pantheon that you really particularly enjoyed bringing to life in the book? Yes. Okay, so I'm so fascinated by them, especially when you peel apart their historical layers and you start syncretizing. Like, for instance, the sort of triad of uh, the triad of Ares, Zeus, and... Hephaestus, if you don't go with the classical version of those characters and the classical sort of father-son's relationship between them, and you let things free float in a way that's much more reminiscent of like uh, 
Ptah, Amon, and Heru, you get something much weirder. And I found them really interesting to work with. So when you do meet Zeus, it'll be full of surprises. But also Aphrodite. She's a very important figure who, in the Iliad, Aphrodite is simultaneously made to be incredibly powerful and kneecapped. And part of that is because Aphrodite was redefined. In the Mycenaean era, she was a major, major, major goddess in her own right without a father. In fact, Aphrodite Urania is basically the version of Aphrodite who Uranus is castrated and then what's left turns into Aphrodite, which is very trans. Well, that I think we talked about that too, and we got this from the um we got this from the queer classicist who wrote an essay on this, like how Aphrodite is literally just Uranus's bits, like biologically. The castration foam, the bits and bits. <laughs> the castration foam instantly gives rise to a super powerful sky goddess, which to me, it's just like maybe a cis version of a transition narrative. That is actually so fascinating. If you look at Aphrodite's birth as a seminal transitioning story, it has it has all the features, right? Yeah. So if we think about it, Aphrodite is essentially like if you take this sky god and you're like, okay, how do you get a trans sky goddess? Well, it's not very difficult. <laughs> I just happen to be biologically composed of all of the most frightening powers. <laughs> yeah. Well, and in a lot of ways, that's just a way to neatly separate a before and after shot so you can have a transition timeline. Or you could just view it as this primordial sky goddess who is transcoded and people need a reason to explain how that happened. Yes, this is fascinating. <laughs> so I'm really interested in Aphrodite and I do some really interesting things with her. Um, she comes in a little late. She's a big figure in the Iliad, and the entire Iliad is told in Wrath Goddess Sing, but it's a portion of a larger story. And Achilles' perspective on the Iliad is not necessarily the same as Homer's perspective on the Iliad, because she's kind of got her own angle on it. And then Hera. Hera is so fascinating to me, because in so many ways, I mean, I leaned into the Hathor imagery, but in so many ways, she, like, her epithet is like queen of kings. She's got this very specific relationship with male war leaders where she kind of points them in a certain direction and tells them what to do and then they do it. And so that's largely lifted from the Iliad, but I was also thinking a lot about there's this really weird late Paleolithic to Neolithic male population crash that shows up in the record of Y chromosomes. It looks like what happened was matrilineal groups went to war with each other using men as cannon fodder and most of them died so i thought to myself well that sounds like something hera would do like this sounds like an origin story that's 100 percent something a hera would do yeah god i mean and, and another thing that just utterly fascinates me about this time period and about your work in particular is is the way that mythologies draw on other mythologies and mythologize history like this is an incomplete understanding of a seminal memory of something that happened in the past that people might have remembered or passed down stories of then that we don't know about now yeah one of the things that keeps coming up for instance in wrath gotta sing is people talk about the ancient world because they're not in the ancient world they're in the present. They're in the modern world. Yeah, they're in the modern world. The ancient world is a long time ago. And they remember bits of it culturally. Like Odysseus has got this. He has weird Athena dreams every now and then about, well, the Neolithic. 
It's like totally categorically different from Achilles' Athena dreams. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. Odysseus, I imagine him just like he suddenly wakes up. He's like the, the peasant in the diner. He didn't pay his check. Like out of all the characters, of course, that's what he would dream about. <laughs> and now I understand it. The cone of time. Oh, yeah. Like the cone of light, the cone of light, the cone of time. But it also kind of is the time cone, like because time only exists because we're moving at a finite speed. But if we like moved at the speed limit of the universe, we'd have zero time. So thank you so much, Maya. This has been just so incredibly fascinating. I now have to go read a bunch of things. Yeah, thanks so much for talking to us. This has been amazing. Thank you. This has been wonderful. Where can people find you? And just for the people at the back of the class who might not have caught the name of your book, can you let them know the name of your book again? <laughs> yes. Um, people can find me at Maya Dean Writer on pretty much all social media sites, including TikTok, though I have no content. I'm usually more active on Twitter and Instagram. And I have a Facebook page. Uh, my book is Wrath Goddess Sing. It is out 6-7 and it's coming out in hardback. It's coming out in ebook. It's coming out in audiobook. The audiobook narrator is a dear friend of mine who does a wonderful, wonderful reading. It's so amazing. You guys should check it out. You should buy it and you will love it. <laughs> Thanks so much. And we will see you all next week. Mm-hmm.